Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. It's actually been a couple of weeks since I've recorded a lesson. Uh, I think I mentioned in our last lesson that uh, we were going to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, what well, we did, in order to uh, watch our grandson. My daughter was the matron of honor at a wedding, and her husband actually performed the wedding ceremony. So we watched the grandbaby while they were off doing wedding stuff. We were in a restaurant in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and we had our 10-month-old uh, grandson with us, and he was sitting in a high chair, and he went, ah, just about that loud. Not horribly loud, but he went, ah, and about 25 feet away was a little girl in a high chair, and she goes, ah, and our grandson goes, ah, and she goes, ah, and they keep this up, and Everyone in the restaurant was laughing because of what was going on between the two of them. So, uh, we had a good trip. It rained most of the time, but it's still beautiful country up that way. Uh, we did have the opportunity uh, to listen to some of the uh, Women in the Word uh, presentations. Uh, my wife is involved in Women of the Word, and so we listened to three of those on our way to and from Tennessee and I might add, uh, ladies, if you have the opportunity to participate in that, there's some very good teaching going on uh, with the women in our church. So, we continue the book of Philippians by picking up in chapter 2 today. The first part of chapter 2 is one of the uh, most important parts of the scripture when we get around to discussing who Christ is. And we'll have a, a lot of discussion about that in just a moment. But if you look back to chapter 1 in verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that theme of unity among the believers is how we're going to start chapter 2. So let's read a bit of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count your others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Here is Paul's admonition about how we, as believers, how we are to think about things, how we are to pursue things. And what he's going to present in this chapter is the idea of humility, the idea of looking after the needs of others above our own needs, not being driven by our own self-interest. So let's pick it up in verse 1 and take this apart and see what it says. So, verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now, let's just stop before we really even begin. When he says, so if there is... This is not, well, this is, might be true or it might not be true. He's really saying, since this is true, what should we do about it? So what is it that is true? 
Number one, there's going to be four things. Number one, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, and if there is any affection and sympathy. This is the motivation that he is giving to us to do what's going to come in the next verse. Why should we do what is in verse 2? Because we have these four things. We have the encouragement in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can be encouraged in our Christian life. Remember, back to chapter 1, there's this discussion about the fact that Paul is in prison. He is in prison for sharing the gospel. And if it were you and I in the church at Philippi that he's writing this to, we might be discouraged. And in chapter 1, he tells them, no, don't be discouraged because God's work is being done. He's witnessing to the Praetorian Guard. Others are being encouraged to spread the gospel because of Paul's example. And why does Paul have this? Because he has the encouragement in Christ. He has the encouragement in Christ. He has the comfort that comes from true love. He has the participation in the Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit is participating in his life and in the lives of all believers. These are the things that should encourage us. And we have affection and sympathy. So the body of Christ has these things because of what Christ has done for us. So what are we then supposed to do because we have these things? And his answer, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul is saying, you, the church at Philippi, you, the church that I helped start through the work of the Holy Spirit, if you want my joy to be complete. Now, this is interesting. Remember, he's in prison and he's talking about the joy that he already has and the joy that he wants to be complete by seeing that the church at Philippi is growing in unity and being of one mind. And I'll give you a little hint. This entire lesson is going to be a discussion of what it means to have one mind. You see, we in our modern world have this fear, this fear that if I become a Christian, I'll be expected to think exactly like everybody else. It's like we in the church are little robots and we're all thinking the same thing. That's not what this is talking about. He's talking about an attitude of the heart that shares the life of Christ with those around us. So it's an attitude of the heart, and he's going to use Christ as the example of how to do this. More about that in just a moment. So if you are a doctor, if you are a homemaker, or if you are a garbage truck driver, we like garbage truck drivers, by the way, Whenever my uh, two-year-old grandson is over, he can hear the garbage truck coming from down the street and he'll run out and the driver will honk at him and all the people say hi to him. The other day, I was out there when the garbage truck came by and the lady driving the garbage truck stopped the truck and said, where's the little boy? 
So we like garbage truck drivers. So if you're a doctor or a homemaker or a garbage truck driver, whatever it is God has called you to do, you are going to think about that particular area that God has placed you, but you're going to do it with the mind of Christ. And what Paul is after is that the church at Philippi, and I would argue all the church today, would have this same mind that he's going to explain in just a moment as being the mind of Christ. Having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So all of this lesson is a discussion about what it means to be of one mind. So, continue. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What is selfish ambition? Well, that's pretty easy, unfortunately. It means what's in it for me. I approach every situation thinking, what can I get out of this? I approach every relationship thinking, what can I get out of it? Everything revolves around me getting what I want. That is selfish ambition. And it's built on top of the conceit that I am, in fact, the center of the universe. Since I am the center of the universe, it irritates me when you don't accept the fact that I'm the center of the, of the universe. And that's what causes the conflict. We all are operating out of selfish ambition. And you'd like to think, you would like to think that when you enter the church, this all just falls away. But in reality, we are all sinners. We are all sinners somewhere in this process of maturing in our faith. And each one of us needs to be reminded, no, it's not about you. You need to set aside that selfish ambition. Now, the implication is that someone in the church at Philippi is living a life of selfish ambition. Remember the discussion back in chapter 1 about somebody preaching the gospel for bad motives. And we had a brief discussion about that. It's not real clear what those motives are, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. I would contend it probably has something to do with selfish ambition. I am preaching the gospel so you will think highly of me. I'm preaching the gospel so you'll give me money. You'll give me stuff. You'll give me prestige, power, influence. All those things that my selfish desire would want. And here Paul tells us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, I would contend that this is a problem in our society today. If you watch commercials, if you read books, if you watch TV shows, it's all about you. You deserve this. You have a right to this. You should do this for yourself. I read a book uh, last week that was actually a fascinating book about the fact that when our surveys and things talk about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who say they do not believe in anything. You know, there's Christians, there's Muslims, there's 
Buddhists, there's Jewish people, and all of these people on the survey. But they're, the growing number today are those of the nuns. They don't believe any of these. But this book was contending, it's not that they don't believe nothing, it's just that they don't believe in an institutional church, so they really believe all kinds of strange things. And one of the things on the list was this obsession we have with self-care. I have to do this for me. I have to take care of myself. I have to be number one. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that, but rather in humility. Now, we could have a long discussion about humility, and we're going to talk about that in the example of Christ in just a moment. You see, some of us think humility is just, oh, I'm no good, I'm rotten, I stink, I'm not good, and we just sit there and kind of, you know, slump our shoulders, and I would contend that's almost a form of pride. We want to say that so somebody else will pop in and say, no, 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 you're a great person. It's kind of a false humility. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself. When you get into a situation, you look around and go, what would God have me to do? What do I do in this situation? What are my responsibilities? What are my, here's a nasty word in today's world, what are my duties in this situation? And you do those things. I always liked C.S. Lewis's discussion about humility when he says that humility is the great architect who builds the great building. And he knows it's a great building. But he would recognize that it was a great building even if somebody else had built it. It isn't great because he did it. It's great because it fulfills the function and need of the building. I may have told you the story before when I started teaching in the Baptist church uh, that I grew up in. Um, you know, we have 10 or 11 couples, whatever it was, sitting around a room. And we had one lady in the group who was a professional singer. I mean, she was good. And she would go to different classes and sing, and she'd come back to our class. And every time she would do this, I'd make her sing. And I always thought it was interesting she never said, oh, no, I'm just, no. She knew the gift that God had given her, and so she sang. She wasn't doing it out of pride. She did it because it was the gift God had given her. So, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. We could just stop there. We could stop the recording and be done, and you would have enough to think about this week. Think about what do you do today? What do you do tomorrow that you're really doing out of selfish ambition or conceit? I would have to confess that a lot of what I do is out of selfish ambition. What can I get out of this situation? But rather, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So, for right now, Let's just think about Paul talking about the church. We could have another discussion about the, those outside the church because, well, I think we need to show humility to those also. But for right now, let's handle the easier one, or at least what's supposed to be the easier one. Within the church, within the church, are we looking out for 
the needs of the others within the church? Or are we looking for what's best, what helps us achieve our selfish ambition? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I think this wording is kind of interesting. Look what it says. Not only look out to your own interest, we know you're going to look out for your own interest, and that's okay. You know, if you're hungry, you need to eat. If you're thirsty, you need to drink. If you're tired, you need to sleep. And God knows that. God has given us the things we need to maintain our needs, to look out for our own interest. But when we take that and we use it as an excuse to ignore the interest of those around us, then we're doing it out of selfish ambition. We need to look out for the interest of those around us. And as I said, let's just start right now with the church. I mean, we need to do this outside the church, but let's start there, okay? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, so it's okay to recognize that you need food, water, sleep, etc. But don't use that as an excuse to not look after the interest of others. Now, we could have another long discussion about what the interest of others are. Okay? I know that if I have needs, other people probably have the same needs. And there are those within the church at any particular time who, because of their life circumstances, have special interests that we as a church need to look out for. Because we acknowledge the fact that there will probably come a time when I will be the person in need of that help from the church. And so we, out of humility, refuse to just look at our own selfish interest and look out for the interest of others. So, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the next ver several verses are some of the most fascinating verses in the Bible. But before we read them, I want to have a brief discussion. I want to have a very brief theological discussion so that we understand what's going to come in the next several verses. To do this, we need to look at two theological points. The first one is the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, I'll tell you right up front, it is a difficult subject. And to me, it is one of those subjects that we look at the scripture and we say, that's what the scripture teaches. Sometimes I don't fully understand what it means, but I'm going to accept the fact that the scripture teaches this. Now, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, it's simply this. There is one God. We as Christians are monotheist. We believe there is only one God. We believe that the scripture teaches that there is only one God. That's easy enough. But we also understand in the scripture that that one God is three persons. And that's where we start getting, having trouble getting our heads around it. You see, I am one person and I am one being. And we understand that, right? But God is one person and he is, no, one being and he is three persons. And those three persons are 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of these three are fully God. They have all the power of the Godhead, but they are all distinct from each other. So, Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But God the Father is not the same person as Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not the same person as the Holy Spirit. If you go back and look at church history, starting with the apostles and going for several hundred years after that, you see a series of church councils and creeds that come out of those councils trying to get a handle and grasp this doctrine of the Trinity. And sometimes when we start trying to use human analogies, we fall into some kind of trap of heresy on one side of the other. So let's just begin with accepting that the scripture teaches there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three of those are God. They have all the power of God. Keep that in mind as we move to the next point. The next point concerns the person of Jesus Christ, okay? At a point in time, Jesus Christ was born on this earth, born of Mary, but Jesus Christ has two natures. Think about this. Jesus Christ is fully God. He has all the characteristics, all the attributes of God because he is fully God and he is fully human. He is fully man. So he gets hungry, he gets tired, he gets thirsty. He has all the attributes of a human being with one exception. He was not born with a sin nature. So, Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully human. And these are combined together in the person of Christ while still being distinct from each other. As I mentioned, the early councils and creeds of the church tried to deal with the nature of the Trinity and the nature of Christ because we see even today heresies on all sides of these discussions. There are those who think that Jesus is fully human, but he's not really God. He's just a really good teacher. He has the spirit descend on him, but he is just a human being. He's not God. There are those, or at least there were in the early church, the Gnostics who believe that Jesus was not really human. Why? Because the Gnostics believe that flesh, this body, is corrupt in and of itself. So there is no way that God, a deity, could take on human flesh form because that flesh is evil. So he had the appearance of a human, but he wasn't fully human. The analogy that's often used is Jesus Christ is walking down the shore at the Sea of Galilee. And if you look behind him, there's no footprints 
because he's not really human. But the Bible says that he is fully human. He suffered as we do. He suffered the temptations. He suffered the pains of growing up. We actually talked about this in the book of Hebrews. Remember, he was just like us so he can be the perfect high priest. So let's repeat our two points. God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human. All the attributes of God, all the attributes of mankind. How is that all going to work out? Let's look at the next verses. But before we do that, let's have one very tiny, very tiny theological discussion. If that is theology, the nature of God, and Christology, the nature of Christ, anthropology is that branch of science, and it is a branch of theology that deals with the nature of man. And I want us to understand just a smidgen of that. We know that we as human beings are created in the image of God. That's what the first several chapters of the book of Genesis teach us. We are made in the image of God, and that gives us a status above the rest of the created order. But, but, we are still part of the created order. We are not, we are not God. If you remember, several years ago, I used an analogy because I just thought it was kind of humorous. Uh, when I was still working, I would drive to work and I would stop and get my uh, Coke on the way to work. And it was in a cup with ice and I'd get to work and I'd open my door and I would dump the remaining ice on the concrete in the parking lot where I parked. And I always parked in the same spot because I had a reserved parking spot. And I started noticing something. There were a group of ants that were waiting for me to pour that syrupy water in that spot so they could enjoy it. The analogy that I used that really bugs us, by the way, is that hundreds of years ago, when they were discussing God and man, they recognized that we were the created ants. And we are receiving something from someone that is so above us that we, can, we have trouble comparing our status. We are the person dispensing the beverage. God is the person and we are the ants receiving that. And we don't like that. We want to think we're big stuff. And we are. We are the peak of the earthly created order. But compared to God, we are just ants. You remember the hymn, the old hymn, that has the line in it, for such a worm as I. But of course, in our modern day, we change that word to such a sinner as I because we didn't want to use the analogy of us being a worm compared to God. It just doesn't jive with our egos. So we know who God is, God in three persons, 
Sounds like a song. We know who Jesus is, two natures, fully God and fully man. And we know that we, even though we are made in the image of God, are part of the created order. We are not God. So with all that in mind, let's read the next several verses. Have this mind among yourselves. This is verse five, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember that phrase because we're going to come back to it. We don't need to work to get the mind of Christ. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, let's stop right there. What is this teaching us about Christ? What is it teaching us about the mind of Christ? Have this mind among you, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, stop right there. There are those who read this English word and they think, okay, He's in the form of God, but he's not really God. That's not what this is telling us. This is telling us he is the very essence. He is made out of the same stuff that God is. He is God. Who, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is interesting. What's interesting is... Um, Last Sunday, we listened to the church service for my daughter's church in Nacogdoches, um, Fredonia Hill Baptist Church or something like that. And he was preaching about this passage. I asked Teresa if anybody would notice if I just stole his sermon, but I'm not going to do that. But he did have a great point about this idea of grasping. Because if you remember, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the devil, Satan, comes to Eve and says, why don't you eat that fruit? God told me not to do it. Why did God tell you not to do it? Well, he just told me not to do it. No, no, no. God is hiding something from you because God knows that the day that you eat of that fruit, you will be like God. And Adam and Eve grasp that fruit in order to be like God. And the point that was being made was that we as human beings grasp to be like God. We want to control things like God. We want to be like the creator. We want to be the gods of our own little world. Men and women are grasping. But that's not what this is saying Jesus is doing. Jesus had it. He had it in his hands. He was God. But he didn't think that it was that important to hold on to that. But rather, he went to accomplish what God, the Father, had set for him to do. Who, though he was the very essence of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is setting aside. Let's think about that. 
in the next verse. He is setting aside that equality with God in order to enter human form. Now, you think, well, that's not that big a deal. Human beings are pretty, pretty cool. We're made in the image of God. We're the worm. We're the ant. This isn't God stepping, you know, from here to here to be human. It's God stepping from someplace way up here to someplace way down there. He did not hang on. He did not grasp that equality with God, which he had. But rather, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. Now, we need to remind ourselves, Jesus is fully God and fully man, combined together. Jesus Christ did not cease to be God. He did not empty himself of his godhood. He is and was and always will be God. So what does this mean? Well, the picture that I've used before, and as I said earlier, pictures begin to get us in trouble when we're talking about the nature of God and the nature of Christ. But let's try it anyway. God, Jesus, Jesus is God, having all the attributes of God. He empties himself by taking those divine attributes and he puts them on the shelf. They're still there. He still has them, but he has put them on the shelf and he has put himself under God the Father. Remember what the scripture says. My will, Jesus speaking, my will is to do the will of the Father. He is setting the perfect example for us. We are to live a life that does the will of the Father. So Jesus did not get rid of them. He didn't cease to be God, but it's like he set them on the shelf and says, I'm not going to use that unless God the Father tells me to. And it's interesting because throughout the scripture, there are a few times, a few times where God the Father tells God the Son Take that and show them what you can do. And usually it scares the bejeebers out of people when he does. I mean, we have the obvious ones of raising the dead, of uh, feeding the 5,000. I've always liked, and you've heard it because I really do like it. He's in the boat and the storm comes up and he is asleep and the disciples are panicking and they come and shake him and go, don't you care that we're about to die? And he, I mean, I envision him, he's kind of stretching himself. <sighs> and he gets up and he says, storm, stop. Now, what person with only human attributes can do that? The answer is no one. God, the son, took that attribute of omnipotence, all power, and he took it off the shelf and he said, Storm, stop. And it stopped. And it says the disciples were scared to death because they knew he wasn't just a human being. So, 
God the Son takes those attributes and he puts them on the shelf. He still has them. Let's not fall into that heresy. He still has them, but he has submitted himself to the will of the Father, have, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. God descending to humanity in order to save humanity. Now, once again, you don't think that's that big a deal because, hey, we're pretty hot stuff, right? We're the ant and we're the worm. We don't like that. We want to think of ourselves as pretty hot stuff, and we are. We're made in the image of God. But compared to God the Creator, Jesus, we are so low that it is hard to come up with a good analogy. But Christ did that. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Okay, here is God the Son in human form. He has submitted his will to the will of the Father. Over here, he has all the divine attributes. And this Roman soldier starts whipping him, whipping him, whipping him. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what I would be thinking. You know, I could take a drop of that omnipotence off the shelf and I could wipe out the entire Roman Empire. I could put that Roman soldier who's whipping me in his place just like that. It wouldn't even take the whole bit of omnipotence, just one little bit of omnipotence, and I could zap him. The Jewish officials are mocking him, and he sits there and thinks, you know, I could take one drop, and I could... A Roman soldier is nailing a nail into his wrist to hang him on that cross, and he thinks, I could just take off, and I could zap him, but he didn't do it. Why? He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think that's interesting, that little you know, clause that's put into that sentence. Yeah, to the point of death, but it was a really, really bad death. I mean, crucifixion uh, kind of falls into the area of cruel and unusual punishment. I think that was the point of it. So Jesus Christ, in human form, fully God, fully man, humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let's back up a little bit, shall we? Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's back up a little bit more. Do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. What would Christ have done if he had lived a life of selfish ambition or conceit? He would have taken himself 
put him on the throne of the Roman Empire, and he would have done it his way. But he didn't do that. And if he had done that, you and I would still be lost in our sins. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He counted us, us, us as more important than himself. And that is the mind that you and I are supposed to have. Hmm. That's kind of hard. That would be really hard if that's what we had to work to achieve. But look what it says. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If it's ours in Christ Jesus, why don't we see it? Why don't we take advantage of it? Because... We're still doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit. That's our driving force. And Paul is telling the church at Philippi and the church throughout all of history, be like Christ. Christ has given you the mind of Christ. And that mindset is a mindset of humility a mindset of obedience to the Father. But I know what you do and I do. We read something in the scripture. We read some verse that tells us to do something. And we sit there for a while and think, you know, what's the angle? What's in it for me? Why should I do this? Why will this make me look good? No, Christ didn't do that. Christ, who had all those powers on the shelf did not take advantage of them, but rather submitted himself to the will of the Father. Guess what we're called to do? And guess what hinders us from doing that? Selfish ambition and conceit. Let's back up a little bit more, shall we? Back to verse 2, where it says, Complete my joy, by being of the same mind. The same mind as what? The same mind as Christ. Now, this does not mean that we're all thinking the same thing. It means that we are looking out for the needs of others rather than our own selfish ambition in whatever place God has put us. So if you're an engineer, you're still thinking engineering thoughts, but you're doing it while looking out for the interest of others and not doing it for selfish ambition. If you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a garbage truck driver, if you're a homemaker, if you're a friend, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a son, if you're a daughter, if you're a grandmother, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, a great-grandmother, you get the picture, right? All of those, wherever God has placed you, you are to be obedient, 
You are to be humble and you are not supposed to seek selfish ambitions and conceit. Why? Because this is what Christ did. Christ is the example of how we are to take on the form of a servant. It's interesting. Um, I think it's in Foster's book on the spiritual disciplines. He says, most of us have no trouble being servants as long as we're in control. But he says, that's not being the servant. That's being in control. The servant says, what would you have me do? And they do it. But what's in it for me? Where's the glory? Where's the honor? Where's the, that doesn't matter. The servant does not worry about those things. The servant worries about doing what the master would have us to do. But I don't want an earthly master. You don't have an earthly master. You have God, who is the master, who has told you to be the servant to all. <gasps> hmm. Now it's interesting. He ends with a couple of verses to tell us what Christ got out of this. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the interesting thing. Jesus, setting aside, emptying himself, became the servant to all. And God says, that, that is what I am pleased with. So Christ was exalted. We saw this in the book of Hebrews, remember? Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what was given to God the Son by God the Father. And here's the interesting thing. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that brings glory to the Father. So, what is it you and I are supposed to do? We are to do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit. We are to have the mind of Christ, which is to look to the other and say, what is their interest, and why has God put me in this place to help them with their needs and interest? How far do we have to go? How far did Jesus go? To the point of death, even death on the cross. And what did Jesus get out of it? He got everything out of it. And here's the thing. What do we get out of it? Well, we're promised the reality of heaven. That's what we get. We are promised the reality of heaven. It's not this world that is meant to provide us 
with all of our comforts. You know the hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Remember that chapter in Hebrews where we went through all of those people who lived lives of faith and it said, this guy, this gal, this guy lived a life of faith and they didn't receive in this world the fulfillment of the promises. But God is faithful. You see, this mind is what allows Paul in the previous chapter to say, you know, if I die, great. If I live, okay. It doesn't matter to me. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Why would he say this? Because he has the mind of Christ. So, what are we supposed to do? Well, we were actually told what to do in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. That's what we're supposed to do. And then we are given the example of what that one mind looks like. Now, is that an easy thing to do? No. In fact, it's probably impossible. Apart from Christ, who gives us that mind, as long as we set aside our selfish ambitions and our conceit. So we'll stop there for the day, and I'll see you next week.